There was a psychologist in the 20th century named Rollo May. He was fairly influential, wrote some famous books, and one of them was called Power and Innocence. And in that book he wrote, when an age is in the throes of profound transition, the first thing to disintegrate is the language. And this leads directly to an increase in violence. True communication and violence are mutually exclusive. Let us pray. Lord God, as we prepare to hear your word, communicate with us. Speak to us words of life. Speak to us your guidance, your gentle correction, your encouragement, above all, your love for us. We give you our thanks in the name of Christ. Amen. So the first reading for today is from the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Let's listen for God's word. I'm reading from the uh, New Revised Standard Version here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Think about that. It's, it said, I please in Babylon build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce, take wives and have sons and daughters there, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm, plans to give you a future with hope, then when you call on me and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me if you seek me with all of your heart. The New Testament reading is from the Gospel of Luke, the 10th chapter, and I'm reading now from the Message Translation. Just then, a religious scholar stood up with a question to test Jesus. Teacher, what do I need to do to get eternal life? He answered, well, what's written in God's law? How do you interpret it? He said, well, that you should love the Lord your God with all of your passion and prayer and muscle and intelligence, that you should love your neighbor as well as you do yourself. Good answer. Do it and you will live. Looking for a loophole, the man asked, and just how would you define neighbor? Jesus answered by telling a story. There was once a man traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And on the way, he was attacked by robbers. They took his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead. Luckily, a priest was on his way down the same road, but when he saw him, he angled across to the other side. And then a Levite religious man showed up. 
and he also avoided the injured man. And then a Samaritan traveling the same road came on, and when he saw the man's condition, his heart went out to him, and he gave him first aid, disinfecting and bandaging his wounds, lifting him onto his donkey, led him to an inn, and made him comfortable. In the morning, he took out two silver coins, the equivalent of two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take good care of him. If it costs any more than this, put it on my bill. I'll pay you on my way back. What do you think? Which of these three became a neighbor to the man that was attacked by robbers? The one who treated him kindly, the religious scholar replied. Jesus said, go and do the same. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So stewardship of community. We've heard stewardship of technology, stewardship of time. You can wrestle with that. Stewardship of community. Uh, it, it reminds me of a, of a line from an old Jimi Hendrix song, Manic Depression. He said, I know what I want, I just don't know how to get it. We all know we want community, and we all know that we want healthy communities, but how do we get it? How do we even understand what it means to live in community? How do you define that? Recently, uh, I had a little experience in my neighborhood. I was sound asleep um, about four in the morning on a Saturday, it was a Sunday morning, few hours before coming here, heard a loud crash out in front of my house and found that somebody in a stolen car had crashed into my car. And um, so I went out there and lo and behold, a lot of my neighbors were already there. And we had just this experience of neighborhood at 4.30 in the morning talking about a couple of wrecked cars. And people were meeting people they had never met before. People were introducing themselves to each other. We, I know where you live, oh, I've seen you, but I'm, I'm Joe, I'm Mary. You know, and so it was like this neighborhood gathering, except it was my car, which made it not as fun. But so we've all had those experiences, right? Where you, you have neighbors you've never met and you've lived there for years, it's maybe like sitting in pews and you see people and you still can't remember their names. It's just a little awkward, but you know they're a part of your community. But how do you define community? Jesus seemed to redefine a lot of relationships, family relationships, friendships, neighbors, even nations. He relativized a lot of relationships as he talked about the kingdom of God. I, I uh, started thinking about this neighborhood. You know, uh, it's one of the earliest suburbs of downtown, uh, and Riverside originally was just a few mansions of wealthy people along the river, nothing much 
infilled. And then eventually, there was a little town that grew up a little farther out called Murray Hill. And there was another settlement a little farther out called Ortega. And there was a streetcar that would bring uh, some of the wealthy professionals from Ortega to work downtown. And then eventually, the neighborhood of Avondale grew up in between. And there was this other neighborhood called Brooklyn, where the African-American people lived, the work, those who tended to be the domestic workers of the wealthy people in Riverside. So you had these different neighborhoods, different strata of society, and now it's all sort of connected and blending and changing. And I did a little bit of study, and I found out I looked at 32204, 05, 07, and 32210. And I looked at the demographics and some of the census data. And I found that this immediate neighborhood, the closer you get to this building, the younger the population, the more female the, the population the smaller the households. You know, the average household in Duval County is 2.6 persons. Here, it's 1.8. Uh, the, the number of rentals as opposed to property that is owned goes up. Uh, the, the mobility of people increases, and, and that's measured by how many people move into the neighborhood in the last 12 months. You know it's 25% in this neighborhood. And the income level is lower than in those other areas. Not a surprise. What do you think the child poverty rate is in 32204? 54%. Now, of course, we can say, well, it depends on where you draw the boundaries. And that's the point, isn't it? Where do you draw the boundaries? So community, do you define it by zip codes, by a neighborhood, by a racial, ethnic, or historical community identity? Do you define it by who's in your biological family? Or maybe is community an affinity group, such as the club you're a member of, or the team you root for? I'm a fan of the Tigers. So you immediately have a sense of community with all other tigers. Or maybe it's a, a PTA group because you're focused on the community of that school. A lot of affinity groups. Have you ever thought of community as a circle of trust, as more of an emotional reality? The people you're closest to and trust the most. The church has been called ecclesia, the called out, a community that is, in that term, meant to be called out of the world to be a separate group, a distinct group. So how do you define community? I guess there are different circles, maybe concentric circles in your life that are different layers, different kinds. A man comes to Jesus and 
he's a legal expert, he knows the law, but in, in Luke's frame, there is this conversation with Jesus where he is using theology apparently to avoid obedience. We've probably all experienced that sense of wanting to postpone a costly obedience by seeking further clarification when really none is needed. And so the questioner wants to know exactly what the law requires of him. He wouldn't want to expend any of his precious resources moving outward any farther in that circle than he would be necessary. He wouldn't want to love somebody in a costly way that he isn't required to love. It calls into question really his whole idea what, of loving your neighbor. But he asks the question, who's, who's my neighbor? And, uh, and Jesus tells a story. Amy Jill Levine, a Jewish New Testament scholar, tells us that parables show us what we already know but don't really want to face. She suggests that we are troubled by social ills such as uh, injustice or racism or whatever, but we're not troubled sufficiently. And so the parable is intended to provoke, to interrogate our lives, to have a punchline that may make us feel a bit uncomfortable. Parables demand interpretation by their very nature. They are flexible, but they're not infinitely malleable. There is a meaning. She says, text without context is just pretext for making it say what we want, softening or deflecting its meaning. So Jesus in his ministry of announcing the reign of God in our midst is often redrawing the circles of community. Who is in? Who is out? What are my obligations? Disturbing the sleep of the legal experts he tells this very familiar story. Travelers on a road, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it was a, it was a rough road through a desert. There weren't any uh, you know, convenience stores or anything like that. It was, a, it was a difficult journey and it was a dangerous journey. It was known to be a place where people could be robbed. But notice it's a story of people on a journey. So inherently, the story invites us to think about being on that journey with them. Some kind of journey, some kind of movement. And so there is a victim, a crime victim. And the first person that comes along is a priest. And he says, there but for the grace of God go I, and goes all the way around. The language says he makes a wide berth. Levite comes along pretty much the same thing. And we think, well, maybe they were justified in doing that. They were afraid for their own safety. Maybe, maybe the robbers were still around, just waiting for somebody to come and help them. Or maybe they were just following the law, you know, the, the, the fear of ritual impurity. If you touch a corpse, 
you know, Luke says this person looks almost dead, they're not supposed to touch a corpse or they would be unclean. But whatever their motives, they pass on by and then now comes a third person. And in the storytelling, we have this triadic structure. It's kind of like often many of our jokes have that triadic structure. Um, a priest, a rabbi, and a minister walked into a bar, right? And after a couple of drinks, they started arguing about who did their job the best, and they decided to have a contest. And so they decided they would measure their effectiveness by who could convert a wild bear to join their con congregation. I won't tell you the rest of the story, but that's, you get the uh, triadic uh, structure. And so the, the people that listened to Jesus' story understood that. The, the priest, the Levite, and the third person, the, the Israelite. In the synagogue, when the Torah is read, people are chosen for the honor of giving a blessing right before and after the reading. And always it goes in that order. First the priest, and then the Levite, and then the Israelite. So when Jesus inserts the Samaritan instead of the Israelite into the story, well, remember Samaria was was where Jacob's daughter had been raped by a Samaritan a long time ago, and where Abimelech murdered his rivals to consolidate his power on the throne. Samaritans were not only heretics and half-breeds, they were rapists and murderers and gang members. And so when we hear that a Samaritan comes along and is stopping to look at the victim, we fear the worst that this Samaritan is going to do even more bad stuff. But the story shifts, and we see that the Samaritan becomes a helper. And so it throws us for a loop. We're confused. We're offended. The story functions to change the subject from eternal life some day in the future to mercy right now. From life with God to life with neighbor. The story invites us to relocate our identity. Because think about it. Who in this story can you identify with? You certainly are not going to identify with the priest or the Levite. We know they did wrong. We can't identify with the Samaritan. So who's left? The victim. If we're in that story, we are the crime victim. We're the one who is hurt, in need, helpless, and then someone comes along and that someone is a Samaritan. So the story invites us to look at our relationships in a different way, to look at ourselves 
instead of being those who are called out of the world because it is bad, we are being called into the world because we are deeply in need of those others. The Samaritan is not converted in this story to be like us. Rather, we are saved by him. Recently, I ran out of gas when I was driving around. True confession. And uh, wasn't very far away from home. So, <clears throat> tried to figure out what to do. I was very near a gas station. I thought, but you know, I couldn't push my car into the gas station on my own. So I needed help. So I called a friend who lived nearby, somebody in my circle. And I knew that if he were around, he would come. And he said, sure, I'll be right there. He brought a gas can. Meanwhile, while I was waiting, these strangers came by. I was blocking the street. They were walking along. They didn't even have a car. They were not uh, well off enough to own a car. At least that was my judgment. They looked pretty rough. They looked like maybe they had come from, I don't know, some kind of treatment center nearby. Or maybe they didn't even have a driver's license anymore. They offered to help me. They said, hey, can we push you in? And I said, well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. And, and we were going to do that until my friend arrived. And so my circle, I, because of the need I was in, my circle enlarged. I gladly, I was so glad they were there and that they offered, they didn't just walk by. Why didn't they walk by? But they stopped. Now, in preaching this, I sure don't want us to stop at this level of moralism. Like Dr. Seuss in, in the story about Lorax, who says, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, things aren't going to get better, they're just not. And so we feel like, well, we just need to care. We just need to care more, we need to do better. That's a kind of a moralistic way of hearing this story. And what I want to invite us to do is to hear this story as a question about our identity. Who are we? How do we understand our place in community? Who is in our bubble? Who are we really like? Am I like the person who didn't finish high school? Am I like the person who can't vote because of their criminal record? Am I really like the person who wears a burqa or a sari? Or the person who rarely bathes or is otherwise repulsive on the outside? Am I like them? Do I find brotherhood and sisterhood when I look at them? Martin Luther 
said, there's no greater obstacle to the work of God's grace in our lives than the conviction that we don't need it. And so if we can see ourselves every day as recipients of undeserved grace, every day in every way, maybe, maybe I can think about my own identity in a different way. At least that's how this story is helping me. It's challenging me. It's making a difference for me in the sense of understanding who God has created me to be a part of. How God has created us to be together. And this, this alone makes a difference. Maybe we can learn to tend the neighborhood 